Hello, everyone. This is the Indian Diaspora podcast. Uh, this is your host, Shashi, back with episode 32. And I'm joined today by my full complement of co-hosts, Vijay, Neeraj, and Vishwas. Uh, yesterday was the coronation of King Charles III of, uh, of the United Kingdom and of many other realms. And so we thought it's an opportune time to talk about the coronation and the events around it. Uh, it was a spectacle, as usual. You know, it's very, very well rehearsed, very well choreographed. Uh, but it's harking back to an ancient custom of uh, something that's a very religious ceremony, but also a very pompous ceremony. So today's topic is all about the coronation. We did cover the Queen's funeral about eight months ago when she died. Um, and we were all expecting the coronation would happen at some point, And now it has happened. Uh, how has the world changed in the last eight months? How have people's views changed on the monarchy in the last eight months? And what did people pick or not pick from the coronation yesterday? So that, I think, is the topic for today. I'll start off by saying, you know, I, you know, I live in London. Uh, the coronation, of course, is uh, something that was happening not very far from where we live. Uh, and I was watching the whole thing on the TV along with some friends. You know, we had a, a party at a friend's house and uh, we got together, um, about 10 of us, and watched the whole thing. Of course, there was live commentary going on from... Um, us as well, in addition to what was coming from the TV. So that was, you know, our uh, experience of the coronation. Uh, Vijay Vishwas and Neeraj, did any of you watch any of it or did you pick any of it up on the news or is it all just what you picked up on social media? So I did not watch it and all I got was a bunch of news and some memes floating around on WhatsApp or, or Facebook. Uh, so not that I was not, it's not like I was intentionally disinterested, but the life was so busy that I just knew it was happening and never bothered to go back and check. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. So I didn't watch it. Uh, and uh, let's see. Yeah, likewise, I didn't watch it. Uh, I've seen obviously snippets of it crossing my feed. So I am aware it happened. <laughs> And I have seen some opinions on both sides of that. So that's the level of engagement I've had because I really didn't see it as something I wanted to pursue as uh, something to watch on TV, etc. And Vishwas? Yeah, so I have been following the news uh, of the coronation with some interest and uh, some intrigue, but uh, not more than that. Right. And so Vishwas, you know, let me start with you. Um, <clears throat> Your take, uh, I mean, as a very distant observer, of course, your take on uh, all the pomp and ceremony of yesterday, uh, how does it strike you, you know, living in a country that is that is a republic, has been a republic for a very long time? Uh, you know, we had the trappings of monarchy much earlier in India, but not for the last um, 75 years. So how did this all strike you as an event? I think uh, as an institution, the British monarchy has a, a, a very promising role that it can play because, uh, you know, every country these days is so divided uh, in terms of uh, left and right and, and along different fault lines, political fault and social fault lines. If, if there is an institution that can, that, that can stay away from all this and provide continuity, then, then that is very good. So, so from that point of view, I think uh, uh, there is a lot that the monarchy in UK can do. And, uh, in, you know, in India, I think the president is supposed to play that role. And uh, I can think of, uh, 
APJ Abul Kalam as as the one president who probably did that, who who I think everyone saw as, although he was brought in by the BJP government, he was above the fray and very very respected. So so there is a, I think there is a valid reason for for UK to to celebrate and uh, uh, you know have a, a, its monarchy. Uh, give a give its monarchy a place in its in its public life, but uh, I was just not really uh, able to understand how can you spend so much money on it, given that uh, there are so many pressing financial and economic problems that UK is having now. Right, 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 right. And and uh, 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 Vijay and Vishwas, uh, Vijay Neeraj, uh, same question to you. You know, how did this all strike you from a distance? So. Uh, of course, you know, uh, Vishwas sent out a, a, a meme long a uh, couple of days back, or maybe yesterday, and I really laughed loud at it because to me that's how it rang. Like you know, your grandfather wants to throw a lavish party, wants you to fund it, no, no, no. but here's the funny thing: he's not even your grandfather, and you're not even invited. <laughs> yeah, joke aside, I still don't even get the idea. Like, what was the purpose, right? Why was it even done? We are in 2023. Yes, he's a monarch. He's a king. But it's all for the namesake. So he could have done, this could have been done in a private party inside the house with few people and not even shown the world, right? It's You said it's a religious ceremony. It's also a diplomatic ceremony, but just keep it in the house. So that's how you felt like, hey, why does the world need to know this? Right. You know, so um, there are so many different frames of reference that you could use to assess what happened yesterday. You know, so Vishwas raised the point about how much money was spent on the uh, on the coronation. Now, you know, that's a point that's very hotly debated. And, you know, the question of whether it's a legitimate use of money uh, at all, and particularly when the country is suffering from a cost of living crisis and many other problems, that question keeps coming up all the time. <clears throat> but I think if you were doing a pure cost-benefit analysis of the monarchy. My sense, I mean, I've never seen one done properly, but my sense is they would come out actually quite okay because the amount of money they draw in with uh, things like tourism, that alone is something that could probably overwhelm all the expenditure that's put on the monarchy. So, you know, I mean, I think if you were using purely uh, the expenditure as a, as a frame of reference, they would come out okay. I think, you know, Nita, you've touched upon something else, which is, I think, for me, the more important point, which is the institution is, um, you know, it's a vestige of the past. If you were designing institutions from scratch today, the idea of designing a monarchy would probably not strike you as the most brilliant idea. So this is definitely, in my mind, um, you know, something that's harking back to the past. The question is, is there merit in demonstrating continuity with those uh, ancient institutions, including in the pomp and pageantry that goes along with it. So I think, you know, that to me is uh, you know, a question that's really worth debating. Uh, but but uh, Vijay, your perspectives on this? Look, the last coronation was around 70 years ago. Okay, so the world was a very different place at that time. Uh, you know, there was probably a place for the British monarchy and everything. Uh, you know, we still had a huge empire that was winding down. But we're, we're in the 21st century now, and what are we doing with coronations based on bloodline and stuff like that? I know there was a time when, we talked about this in one of our previous episodes, where, you know, 
the monarchy and you know all the people who fought and everything they were there for a reason for security and stuff like that and you know even there your your continued reign was not a given right somebody else who was powerful or was a better ruler or somebody who could do a better job of governing could come along and and put you out of power right and this all feels very anachronistic now when you look at how and especially when you talk about the pomp and splendor and the traditions and the amount of money that has been spent on this and i think shashi you or neeraj somebody mentioned india right what did india do when they got independence they swiftly got rid of their kings and princes we still have some people who live in a big bungalow or something which is not in great state but you know and they have memories of the past but they have all figured out that they have to now uh, adopt the new way of, in which india is run and prove their place there right so to me it just feels like why why when we had this opportunity all these people had time to prepare for this we had this opportunity we still continuing in this way and hey maybe everybody likes it and you said cost benefit analysis was done and this is all very good for the economy and stuff like that maybe it's all true but doesn't it just strike you as like we want to live a certain way and we have a certain way of doing things now but we're still keeping this alive and and i think i think somebody i think vishwas you mentioned the role of the president in india i get it i mean you know so this person is uh, the, the the king or the queen is the sort of sort of the head of state who sort of provide some input but again then why is it not based on merit right and again as i said in the old days some other king could have come and displaced them if they were better so it just feels like how can you just carry this along just because these people are in the same bloodline and why not have that also evolve with time yeah i mean you know the point here is that if you look at the president in india you know they were uh, they were given powers that are similar to what the monarch has and in fact some of the pomp and pageantry that goes along with it as well it's definitely not to the same scale uh, I, i i don't i won't pretend that at all but they have some of the same pomp and pageantry the open horse carriages and all that stuff where it is different is that it is not inherited it's an elected position sorry neeraj i interrupted you no 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 you you just said it that the president of india is an inherited all based on the bloodline but the one of the things that uh, you know which you almost mentioned but i think you slightly passed that the scrow notion is still uh, a, you know it still reminds people of imperialism right it still reminds people of colonialism that british did over what almost 70% of the world so so 70 years later when all uh, almost all countries are free of colony you know being colonies i mean there there's a commonwealth out there but they're still not the same as colonies this whole sharad was reminder of their imperialism to a lot of people and that's why i think it kind of tuned people off and maybe have disgusted them with this uh, whole sham so so you know neeraj um, you know we did discuss some of this uh, when we were discussing the queen 8 months ago there have been a lot of opinion polls both in the uk and some in the other uh, commonwealth countries where the monarch is still the monarch uh, and it's interesting to see how views have changed between the queen and what exists today so the first is that support for the monarchy has diminished in the uk quite substantially i mean especially among the younger people and that is basically just bringing the the question to mind that we were discussing 8 months ago which was that when you when you say monarchy are people talking about the monarchy as an institution or were they talking about the queen and it's evident now that a lot of that um, that admiration was invested in the queen and not in the institution and that's what's being brought into question so 
there is definitely a change in people's attitudes towards the monarchy. In the UK, it's just not enough to be able to make a change to that institution. You know, there's still enough support for the institution, and we can discuss why that is. But the uh, the few bits of news and and uh, analysis that's come from the other co- other Commonwealth countries is very interesting. So people in Australia and Canada, you know, most notably two of the countries where the king is still the king, um, have no real kind of interaction with the monarchy, no real kind of connection with the monarchy at all. And in the 13 other countries where uh, the king rules, you know, most most of them in the Caribbean, there are active movements to get rid of the monarchy and turn the countries into republics. Now, in many cases, um, you, know, you know, the requirement under their own constitutions uh, is that you need a referendum with either half or two thirds of the country supporting. And they've not been able to get to that point in the past. But it looks increasingly that that's going to happen in the future. So, you know, we were making the point eight months ago that change is likely to come because the passing of the Queen meant that people's views on the monarchy is going to look different. And I think we can see some of that happening right now. And I agree. So, so I think you made a great point, the distinction between Queen and the monarchy, right? Queen was beloved. She has seen more president in the United States or the head of the states than I think any other head of the state has seen in their life. So, so I get that point that how the queen was the like one versus you know the, the monarchy one. Uh, but my surprise to this is that UK, being the front leader of so many things, is still stuck to this old tradition, right? I of can course. see if this was of going course. on in India or some other you know, you know uh, other third world countries we talk about. But this is UK. This is one of the developed countries. This is one of the pioneers of so many. You know, uh, I'm talking about political and scientific things. It's it, it just, it's just amazing that UK is still stuck here. Oh, absolutely. I think you know the UK excels itself in <clears throat> carrying on with old traditions in a way that most countries don't. I mean, I guess if you went to Japan, probably you would find these old traditions carrying on, but. The UK is in a class of its own when it comes to sticking with old traditions. That's absolutely the case. <clears throat> but the point I'm making is that even in the UK, the winds of change are very visible today in the in a way that, frankly, during the Queen's time, were less visible. But can, can I uh, <clears throat> can I raise an interesting point? Um, so we watched most of the coverage yesterday on the BBC, but this was an e- event that was being covered by you know, pretty much every channel. So we were also flipping channels and seeing, you know, what the coverage looked like. So, uh, you know, we watched CNN, we watched uh, some European channels, you know, some French channels, um, and we watched Al Jazeera. Now, what's very interesting in the coverage is that the BBC's coverage, no doubt, was very respectful. That's kind of the role that the BBC plays in the UK, very respectful of the monarchy and all that. The other channels in the UK were also very respectful. Uh, Al Jazeera's coverage was all about what was wrong with the coronation and what was wrong with the monarchy and all that, almost to the point of, um, you know, focusing only on providing the counterpoint and nothing else. But I found that that you know, that contrast in the coverage very interesting. Now, what was also very interesting is that there were some protesters who were in, arrested. Um, I mean, anti-monarchy protesters um, who were arrested yesterday. And there was almost no coverage on the British channels while the event was on. Now, there's been a lot of coverage since then in the news and debate and all that, but there was nothing while the event was going on. And so, 
you know, there's a there's a sense here. I mean, people often complain about the hypocrisy of the British media as well. Uh, there was a sense here about had this been going on in another country, would the BBC have been so respectful or not? What do you guys think about all this whole debate? Well, I think it's all got to do with context and local, right? So again, our views coming into this, Shashi, are based on our background and history, where we grew up, what we saw. You know, you know, it's. I think everybody's views are going to be shaped based on their realities, right? So I don't see, to, to say that the BBC is hypocritical, sure, I mean, all media, to some extent, they're also trying to cater to their audience, and there will be some bias based on where they're located, right? And again, I have no issue with the idea that, you know, the British monarchy, the, those that, that line of people continues to have some level of title or whatever till that, you know, eventually goes away. But I guess the way I think somebody I think one of you mentioned that this is reminiscent of things in our past that kind of raises our hackles a little bit more than maybe for the people who don't uh, get put up by it. So I think it all has to do with sort of where you're sitting in the world and watching this and what it reminds you of and kind of makes you think like, really? So that's where I think some of us are coming to this from. If the UK continues to have the monarchy and, you know, want to have it at whatever level they do. It's fine. I mean, that's a choice that the UK has. But I'm just surprised by the level of interest and whatever from different parts of the world and sort of people really getting worked up about if you're not into it. Why? I mean, in the end, this is this is just another monarchy that eventually should you know, kind of go away, in my opinion. Yeah. But uh, Neeraj and Vishwas, I mean, <clears throat> what do you think about that sort of uh, the point about the fact that the coverage looked very different depending upon where you watched it? So you can, you know, uh, look at it from... Uh, where else you have a monarchy in the in the world? So, so for example, you have it in Thailand. Yes. And uh, uh, the the king of Thailand, till recently, the, the 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 king who recently died a couple of years back, was, who was very very highly respected, extremely respected. So so uh, uh, revered even. So. It, it brings to the point, uh, the point in my mind is that, uh, you know, it's really a lot about the conduct of the person who is the monarch. And uh, if that conduct is very highly respected, then a lot of these questions don't really arise because uh, the person is seen as being very valuable to the country which the earlier king in Thailand was seen yeah, as. Yeah. Well, well, you know, Vishwas, I think that that contrast that you're drawing between the UK and Thailand is very interesting indeed. And we were in Thailand four years ago and we were, I mean, I kind of known this from the news and everything I knew about Thailand. But I was really struck by the, um, not, not just the sort of respect and reverence, but almost like this godlike character that's imbued in the king. Uh, and so, you know, King Rama Nine, who died, you know, whatever, five years ago, I mean, he was very respected personally. The current king, I don't think, enjoys the same level of respect. But there are shrines to the current king and the past king, you know, on most street corners. I mean, this is a level of um, almost religious reverence that is, uh, I mean, even living in the UK, I've never seen it. I mean, in fact, there's nothing of that kind in the UK. So, you know, if you wanted to talk about a country which has, which um, stuck in traditions even more. I mean, Thailand is definitely one of those. And I would add to that, you know, in Thailand, the king is not simply a king, right? 
he's the incarnation of god for those yeah. guys too so so yeah. thailand is absolutely unique that way but you look at bhutan like how bhutan is also a monarchy but has kind of relinquished that now i think uh, uh, you might know more but bhutan is moving away from monarchy yeah. and yeah. moving into a democracy yeah. Yeah. and then you have uh, absolute monarchies in middle east right look at saudi and uae which is actually seven monarchies into one monarchy so there are monarchies out there but i think uh, the pomp the the glamour that british monarchy brings out is probably unique uh, you won't see that coming out of say netherlands or japan yeah. or even thailand for that matter so you know i mean neeraj one of the interesting things here is that in uh, if you go into the history you know many years ago in fact there's a book sitting in front of me called in the shadow of the gods which is the relationship between monarchy and religion and gods and all that stuff it's a fascinating read uh but in most cases in the past kings used to claim a divine right to rule that you know their right to rule was not given by the people but by god and uh there was certain elements of divinity that were invested in the kings and queens themselves so they were seen as some sort of uh you know manifestation of god that continues to be the case in thailand in the uk the divine right to rule was given up in the 17th century and the the monarchy has been sort of steadily moving towards a constitutional monarchy huge amount of changes happened especially in the 18th century but they carried on happening so this is what we've ended up in the uk is a very ceremonial position but one in which the monarchy still maintains a very formal role and a very you know very prominent role you know compared to other european countries where there is still a kind of constitutional monarchy where they don't quite occupy the same public space the uk is a little bit different but it's worth saying you know that uh, i don't think anyone in the uk would think that the king has a divine right to rule anymore I mean, despite the very religious nature of the ceremony yesterday and that's what is interesting right shashi because if you look at uh, king charles this person has shown himself to be quite progressive right over the years yeah. and he i mean a lot of people say like he was sort of a outlier to some extent because of the way he was right and uh, he's kind of shown the ability to change with the times and behave differently and be accepting of things that would normally have not have been accepting perhaps if he had intervened and made the ceremony much more aligned with the times you know maybe the reaction would have been very different right so with the right kind of design team communication strategy and just sort of making it fit with where we are today but still with some level of pomp and splendor which i don't think people would have pushed back on maybe a lot of people would have said okay this is different you know this is as you just said it's uh, less of that whole divine right thing and more about just being sort of the the head of state uh, and it's part of a you know the the current state of affairs in england maybe the reaction would have been quite different and we would have all said yeah this is more fitting Yeah, you know, but Vijay, let me just point out something on that one because uh, you know I've got the TV on in front of me and the news is playing images from yesterday. The first thing is that this was a much scaled back ceremony compared to what happened seventy years ago, when it still looks out of place, and I and totally take that point. But there's something remarkable about what happened yesterday, which I think is worth acknowledging. So, you know, Charles has been, um, you know, very prominent. I mean, as you say, in being progressive. one of those elements of being progressive was that he's he does respect other faiths now you know that's not an easy thing to say for somebody who is um you know formally the head of the anglican church 
But in his coronation, there was a very prominent space given to other Christian denominations. In fact, uh, just on the screen in front, front of me right now, we've got the Catholic Archbishop, but also the Orthodox bishops uh, of, uh, you know, the Greek Orthodox faith and the Orthodox faith and all that. Uh, and that is very different from what has happened before. I mean, even the acknowledgement that there are other Christian denominations is a big thing. But it went beyond that. There were Hindu leaders and Sikh leaders who played a very prominent part in um, in, in the ceremony. Now, you know, I would draw a contrast here between somebody who uh, doesn't need to acknowledge uh, this multi-faith environment, but is making a very conscious effort of doing that with God knows how many countries around the world where the politicians are going in the other direction, where this diversity and, and, uh, and uh, especially religious diversity is being suppressed very actively by politicians. So I think, you know, you can have all sorts of views about the pomp and pageantry yesterday. But I think it's definitely worth acknowledging that this man has made an effort to acknowledge the multi-faith Britain that we live in these days. Yeah, I, I think that's a very fair point, Shashi, and perhaps worth, you know, something that I didn't acknowledge earlier. And I think the other thing to, I guess, look at it from a positive perspective is that he, he's been waiting for a long time of course. to get into yeah. this chair, right? And the longest he, apprenticeship in history, yeah. That's right. So, but no, that said, uh, he's got, you know, many years ahead of him. And this is probably the the unique chance that he has to yeah. evolve the monarchy to be something that can persist because he brings it to a place where people can sort of say, yeah, I can live with that being as part of the as part of our society. Because uh, we do know, even though the queen was beloved, she was kind of stubborn in many ways, right, in terms of not uh, changing tradition as much as I'm sure Charles is willing to really rock the boat and maybe this is this is his unique opportunity to do something here that leaves uh, the monarchy in you know a state of sustainment as well as leaving behind legacy. well i think that is very much the test that he faces you know can he modernize the monarchy enough for it to still have this emotional appeal that it's had in the past especially with the younger population otherwise this is an institution that will be very difficult to sustain I think that was the point I was going to ask you, Shashi, later. Like, where is monarchy headed with this, right? So, uh, of course, Queen lived for 90 plus years and hoping, you know, Charles might live that long. So, he's got another 20 or so years of the monarchy. But that would be sort of in the middle of 21st century, almost going into 22nd century. Where does this monarchy head to? Well, I, you know, Nita, I think, you know, it's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, as I said, I think if they're able to modernize the monarchy to have an appeal with the younger population, then this institution can carry on. <clears throat> I mean, remember, you know, it's been a very successful institution for a thousand years. And if you compare this with, um, you know, let's compare this with India for a minute. Uh, I mean, most monarchies in India um, struggled to sustain themselves beyond a century. You know, three generations, four generations, and they were out. Now, there are, of course, exceptions to that. And, and you know, people will point out the home kings of Assam who lasted about 600 years. I would point out the the kings around Chotanagpur, you know, the Ranchi area, where many of them lasted even longer. Uh, of course, they had a much smaller kingdom and they were not prominent in the same way that the uh, British monarchy is. But they had figured out a way to last much, much longer. You know, the Nagvanshi kings in, in Ranchi claim, you know, descent from about 2000 years. So there is something in this institution that gives it the ability to refresh itself and keep in pace with times. As I said, the test will be whether it can carry on doing that 
in the modern era um and you know i don't know what the answer to that question is honestly i wouldn't even try to speculate on whether they'll be able to do it or not but there is definitely an effort being made to modernize yeah and i think to your point shashi i mean you know why was this monarchy so sustainable and partly it was because it evolved right i mean if you just go back even to the magna carta why maybe those are the this is the time where another pretty significant step change could happen yeah. which makes it for the absolutely you know look uh, i mean being able to sustain yourself for such a long time involves um, you know institutions and all that it also involves some accidents you know uh, there were times of weakness in the history of the british monarchy where it could have fallen apart but you know they were lucky in some respects that things did not fall apart but the critical thing is that at points of great stress they sort of either by accident or by will they changed whereas others were a bit more inflexible and had to be thrown out um and i think what we are seeing in charles in my view is that willing to willingness to change again uh my question really is is that willingness sufficient to be able to change enough to sustain this or not and i think that is that is the point right because it has adapted but one i think there's another unique point of uh, british monarchy is that it's also a head of a church i compare that to vatican right uh, or compare to monarchies in middle east they are not head of a religious institute while they are very religious they are not head of religious institutes equivalent and uh, the only parallel to british monarchy is the vatican if you think of vatican as a monarchy so i i think that's another part of it, is that probably causes a lot of people not to just disband it because of involvement of church of england what do you think yeah you know i mean neither that's a very interesting point if i could just if i could just take a bit of a historical detour here um i mean the the the, the christian church in general i'm not just talking about the catholic church but the uh, christians in general had this um origin in being very rebellious against the king that's the early history of christianity and therefore uh the church was established as an institution very separate from uh the monarchy I and mean, this is the the sort of roman empire as such and you know there's that age old phrase you know given to render unto caesar that that which belongs to caesar and unto god that which belongs to god which was a clear sort of separation of church and state now there's huge amounts of power play between the church and the state you know i won't go into all of it uh but it's only in the anglican church by the design of henry the 8th that the monarch became the head of the the anglican church and that's not the case with other christian denominations at all but you know there are in history there are two very remarkable events where the king was also the head of the of the of the religious order call it the church if you want uh and where the king was deposed and it ended in the complete destruction of the religion as well uh the most uh, the one that's talked about a lot is the conquest of the uh of the inca empire by the spanish in 1531 1532 where you know the inca was captured um in a uh, in a place called cajamarca and when the inca was captured the rest of the inca state just did not know what to do because he was god how could he be captured and it took very little time uh for the entire inca empire to collapse now i'm hugely simplifying there were many other factors involved in this but it remains the case that uh you know the capture of the inca himself the king resulted in the complete collapse of the empire and there's an even more significant case which is less known about and less talked about is that in the zoroastrian faith going back 
to the seventh century, it was exactly the same case that it was a, that the Zoroastrian religious order was personified in the king. And when Ardashir III, the last king, was captured, that was the end of the Zoroastrian state. Um, so, <clears throat> there, you know, there is some danger in imbuing too much authority in the king as far as the religious order is concerned. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the points that is sometimes made about India is because in India, none of the kings owned the religion. The religion had its own life. That's one of the reasons why India survived as a cultural entity, even if politically it was taken over. Sorry, that was a historical detour. I can't stay away from it. I, you know, uh, I think, uh, of course, that uh, that danger probably does not exist today because, you know, not so much is at stake if the if the king is no more or the queen is no more. I think the, the danger I see is that uh, an unelected uh, person gets to decide uh, how to, you know, that so much of money is going to be spent on a ceremony on himself. Uh, it is not his money, it is public money. And uh, uh, in a democracy, for someone uh, to decide that, I think is uh, uh, a dangerous thing. And, yeah, and you know, that is something that probably... And, and I, you know, to the other point that we were thinking about, that, uh, you know, will the monarchy uh, adapt in order to survive? I... I I'm not so sure if that is the point. I think the point is whether the monarchy is really adding uh, value to the country. And, and so, that so, is a completely different thing. No, completely. So Vishwas, I think a few points. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that the king was deciding what, how much money to spend here. I mean, there was, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know, but I'm sure there was a huge amount of negotiation between the palace and the government about what kind of ceremony they were going to hold and how much money they were going to spend. So I'm, I'm not sure that that's entirely the case, that he can just decide how much money to spend, because I don't think the king has had that, kind of, or the queen had that kind of power for a very long time. The second point is, you know, I mean, it's, it's obviously the case that if, you know, if the king is no more, then nothing happens to the church. Um, you know, we're long past that. But there is a point that underlies that, which is how much centralization of power can any state deal with <coughs> before it becomes completely disruptive? And I think that is the point that's worth debating, because even in democracies, what we are seeing now is the rise of the strongman politics, where there's too much invested in the strongman and no idea what happens when the strongman leaves. You know, is, you know, are they to be replaced by another strongman? Or, you know, what happens to institutions? I think that is the broader worry that I would um, point out. And I think your third point, Vishwas, which is it's not so much about the monarchy, but about what people think about whether they should have this institution at all. I mean, it's a very valid point. And I think, you know, it reflects on what I was saying earlier, that if these guys are not able to keep the uh, the goodwill of the public, they will be gone as an institution. Because, uh, as I said, you know, if you started with a clean sheet of paper, uh, you wouldn't design a monarchy in. Guys, look, you know, we've gone for about uh, 40 minutes now. I think that's been an interesting discussion on the monarchy. And I'm sure uh, at some point we will want to come and revisit this as things develop with the monarchy. It's a fun topic to talk about. Uh, but let's leave that there for today. Um, and we'll come back next week again with a different topic. Uh, it's been nice talking about this fun one because it's been um, such a spectacle yesterday. But this is, um, this is the Indian Diaspora podcast, episode 32, signing off. And we will see you all again next week with a different topic.